This is Culture A Podcast. I'm your host, Sarah, and this is a show where we'll deep dive on the good and the bad with Middle East HR and talent experts on their challenges, strategies, and success stories to inspire your own journey. Listen in and get ready to unlock potential and drive results with Culture A. Thank you so much, everybody, for joining us today on Culture A. I have a very special guest with me today. Rod Gill joins me to discuss something that I think can resonate with a lot of individuals that are within this field. Rod is a talent acquisition professional. Okay. He's got quite a rich kind of portfolio because he his experience has spanned across a number of sectors and everything from aerospace to retail in both Latin America and the Middle East. He has been kind of the driving force behind a lot of transformative HR strategies at companies like Adidas and Boeing, and he's led large teams and organizations like Edge and Team. His global experience mixed with his regional insights is the reason I wanted to bring him on Culture Aid today, because I know that can add a lot of value to those of you that are listening. And his on-the-ground work uh, that he's done in the Middle East really does make him like a fountain of knowledge for HR challenges and innovations. So this is why I have on the show with me and I'm super excited. Rod, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Sarah. And thank you very much for the kind introduction. I couldn't put it better than you. Of course, no, I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> okay, so Rod, let's jump into today's discussion. You know, you're, you are a talent acquisition professional. My background is also within talent acquisition. I wanted to dedicate an episode to this topic. I know there's a lot that we can dive into, but let's just go right ahead and, and jump in. For those of you that are listening in, I'm sure you're wondering if you can get a little bit more information on Rod's background. So Rod, your experience across recruitment and within leadership roles, it's really impressive. Can you tell me what motivated you to pursue a career in this field and how it got started? Yeah, absolutely. So it was started as just like many of us in talent acquisition by kind of accident, right? So it was in my, with my first employer, Teletech, now known as Tech. It's a global call center they employ around 40,000 people across the globe. Uh, and I was in Mexico City. I applied for a job as an agent, but only one month later, I, I was uh, in the HR department and I saw how people or employees were helping applicants to get a job. And I loved it. I was like, hey, you know what? I want to do this. I want to be one of those. And I started helping them out after my shift as, as an agent. So once a person got sick, so she went into a sick leave and they asked me to actually support permanently. And that's how it started, actually. And from there, I started growing in my career. I ended up being in charge of all Latin America for the organization. Then I moved to a manufacturing company called Flex, then Adidas, which was the opportunity for me to move countries from Mexico to Panama. And then with Adidas, I moved to the UAE. The rest is, well, it's story. We, I've been in different companies, but that's basically how I started my career. And since then, I have, I've been in talent acquisition all this time, not shifting to anywhere else except for Karim experience. I was also in charge of uh, employee experience, which is one of my core interests. Yeah, and I, I can see how that kind of marries over. So firstly, thank you for the background. Secondly, you said something that I've actually said on the show many times before. I don't think anyone plans to get into talent acquisition. It's the funniest yeah. thing. You just... It just right. finds you and, and you end up building a career within it. That's exactly what happened with me. So I can resonate completely. You either hate or love. There is no in between in talent acquisition. Yeah, 100%. And I can see how the employee experience part kind of ties into it because we do have a hand in how that kind of, how it 
impacts employee experience or what we're doing, how TE runs impacts employee experience. So I can see the, the marriage there. The companies that you've worked with are not small organizations. We're talking about global giants here. And to the fact that you've led teams and transformation and all of that in, in these organizations is a true, I think, testament of what you're capable of. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the show. And right now there's a very big shift within the HR space, within a lot of spaces, but we're focusing on HR, the digital shift, right? Okay, that's coming in and how that's impacting organizations, uh, processes, uh, tools, how people operate and, and kind of team size and so on. As the world of recruitment undergoes this rapid digital transformation, how do you ensure that your teams stay ahead of the curves and they and that they can adopt like the latest tools and they're able to keep up with the latest techniques? Yeah, that's a really cool topic. And actually, you touched in a very interesting point, which is the size of the teams, right? We tend to believe that through automation and through digitalization, the team will get will shrink and we will be able to do more with less. However, to stay on top of everything, I think that we need to have a bigger teams. Bear with me, I will explain why. I think that if you want to be on top of everything that is going on, you need to have an enabling part of the team and an operational part of the team. The enabling strategic part of the team needs to focus on that, on enabling the requisition carriers, basically the recruiters. You need to have this enabling team always looking for what's the latest trend, what's going on in the market analysis, tools, upgrades, updates, and everything. And only then, you will be able to really be on top of what's going on. And these people have to, they don't necessarily have to have a talent acquisition background, believe it or not. Some of the most successful people that I have seen in these roles are uh, marketing specialists or marketing professionals, economists, people that understand how the world works, not only on talent acquisition, but in general in technology. Lastly, for the recruiters, for example, I'm always trying to brainstorm with them and, and ask, okay, what can improve your life? How can I help you? That's one. And the second one is, how can we improve the candidate experience? Once we start talking about candidate experience, everything else falls into the right place. How technology comes into that. Whenever we are discussing in the process and in an objective conversation, how to improve experience, we always ask ourselves, can this be done through the system? Yes or no? And what are the limitations? If the answer is yes, then we start looking for an MVP, a minimum viable product. To, to be able to launch it. And then we iterate. So those are my two kind of advices on how a team can stay on top of what's going on in, in the tech world. Create an enabling team that will be dedicated to candidate experience, trends, data, systems, products, etc., And make sure that talent acquisition, the recruiter, focus on delivering a great experience through tools and systems. I don't know if that makes sense to you. It completely makes sense to me. And actually, I like your perspective. I think you you touched on something that's very interesting. A lot of people think that with automation, it's, it, there's a direct correlation between tools coming in and then teams team size getting smaller. And as you said, you believe it's the opposite, that actually the team should grow. And I like the fact that you're saying, you know, let's bring in the automation to make sure that 
the tasks that we're doing that could potentially consume a lot of manual time is removed from our recruiters, removed from our team so that they can focus on things like candidate experience or proactively, let's say, sourcing and things that that the job really entails if you want to be a good recruiter. So I like I like that you have that perspective. How big is your team right now, Rod? So right now I have a few people reporting directly to me. I have around five people reporting to me between talent acquisition managers and one person that is in, in this enabling function. We call it talent acquisition, employer branding, planning. This is the position that I was talking about. But under them, we have around 21 recruiters across the, the group. And we are a group of around 6,000 people. Wow. Okay. So that's actually really impressive. I, I also like the fact that you already implemented this structure in your organization. It's not something that you're planning. You're actually, you're actively doing it, which is great. Okay. Let's talk about employee experience for a moment. Okay. Since it's come up, employee experience is such a complex topic. I feel like it's not something I need to dedicate one episode to. It's something I need to dedicate like an entire season to, I think. Okay. It's an art and it's a science. You're, well, let's say based on your tenure, Okay. Can you share some of the transformative like initiatives or the strategies that you've put in place that you've seen make a real tangible difference that have enhanced the overall employee journey? Absolutely. I think that one great example is what Karim did when I was working for them. We decided to, to attack different parts of the employee life cycle, right? We focused on one that is has a lot of weight on how your journey will be with that employer, which is the onboarding process. So we decided to enhance the onboarding process. It started by first, the technology that we were going to use. So we brought on board a tool that is called Enboarder that is dedicated to provide great experiences through videos, through different interventions, pre-onboarding and post-onboarding. So it goes from day one of signing your offer, accepting your job offer, to day zero, which is when you start the, your new job and 90 days after. So through this tool, we were able to interact massively in two ways with the candidates, sending them welcome videos, telling them what to expect, and you getting in return data. You get the return information. But what you do with that information is the most important thing. So we're receiving advanced data, just information, just like what's your favorite lunch? What's your favorite meal? What you enjoy? How you like to be recognized? So that data, we transferred it to the hiring manager saying, hey, you're going to receive Sarah very soon, in two weeks. Start planning a lunch with the team. And by the way, this is her favorite food. So it's the stuff that really makes impact. Then we decided to bring every new joiner to Dubai. No matter where they were joining, the first week was in Dubai, interacting with the founders, interacting with each of the functions getting inspired. So what was the result of that? The result was uh, that we increased by 40% the level of engagement in the first three months. Oh, wow. That was very important as well because we used to have the highest attrition in the first six months because it's, it was a startup, right? It was crazy environment. But when you have the purpose in mind, when you have the conversation with the founders, when you receive this care at the beginning, your engagement goes up. And when your engagement goes up, your productivity increases. So we were able to justify all the cost of the system, of the travel and everything by the percentage of, of um, engagement increase and also the, the productivity. So that was one. And the other one that I'm extremely proud of was the rejection state. So you could probably say, why would you invest on rejection experience? I'm a firm believer that the way companies reject, it's a 
direct reflection of their culture. So the same in, in, in Karim, we decided to look at all of our notifications in the system, including the rejection one. And the proudest moment of my journey there was when uh, a candidate posted voluntarily in social media saying that it was the best rejection email that she had ever received in her life, that Karim was on top of the emotional intelligence game. So that was great because no matter how much technology you use, if you don't put the right content to interact with your candidates at every single stage of the recruitment process, you will not be successful. Oh, 100%. I completely resonate with, I think, look, I think that's an issue that a lot of organizations have, especially somewhere, I'm going to speak for the UAE because that's where I'm based. Sure. In the UAE, you post a job, you're inundated with applications, 90% of them are irrelevant. And it, that's become the norm, right? It's, it's expected. That's a behavior of the market. And I think that because of that, recruiters who work here, for them, it's normal to receive so many applications. They don't want to necessarily maybe dedicate all of the time it would take to go through so many of them sure. because they have competing priorities. And so then you end up in this spiral where you're just not getting back to people. Okay. And, and again, it's become the norm and it's the worst thing. It's the worst impression that you can make on an organization. I completely agree with you how you are rejected or how you're communicated to throughout the entire recruitment process, whether you're accepted or not, is a direct reflection of the culture. And we need to, to be very clear on how that impacts uh, our business. Believe it or not, there is a direct correlation with your business. When I was in Adidas, we included as part of the candidate survey, a question that was, how likely is your consumer behavior going to be affected based on your candidate experience? 70% of the candidates stated that their consumer behavior would be affected based on the candidate experience. We had more than 1 million applicants a year. So it's more than 700,000 people that said, okay, me, I, I am I'm a, an Adidas client and I might buy more or buy less depending on my candidate experience of your products. So you can put as, as a dollar sign to that, right? You can say the candidate experience matters for your business. And it, it, it applies the same to many consumer organizations. So it's not only exclusive to Adidas or the, the companies where, where I've been. If you're a consumer organization, Pay attention to your candidate experience. It's so funny that you said that. I've, I haven't thought about that before. I mean, you're completely right because from my own personal experience, there are organizations that I have had a poor experience with and I do not buy their products. I do not use their services. It's not even a conscious thing, right? I, I'm not consciously sure. saying, oh, I'm not going to use X or I'm not going to do X. It's a subconscious thought process where I'm just like, why would I go there? Or why would I buy this? Or why would I use this when there's a competitor that's better? And it's, it's so funny. I've never connected the dots on that. So it's incredible that you right, actually, right. yeah. And you put the, I love that you spoke to it through data. Like you actually, you measured it, you know, it, it wasn't something that you just, it wasn't an anecdotal feedback and that's key for me. Okay. So let's talk about talent acquisition a little bit because in TA, as you know, we're always competing with multiple priorities that come from a business, regardless of your seniority level, whether you're driving the strategic direction behind the talent acquisition function, or you are actively recruiting and, and sourcing and, and interviewing candidates, whatever it may be, whatever your role is, there's always this battle between finding individuals that have the right skill set for the role and finding individuals that have the right culture fit. Now, in an ideal world, a recruiter should be finding a person that displays both their skill sets and their their culture fit. Okay, in 
in however you evaluate them. However, when you have strong demands or let's say volume demands from a business or you've got priorities or urgencies coming from a business, sometimes it's easy to forget about balancing those two and pick one over the other. Okay. A lot of companies tend to put emphasis on one over the other. You've seen it. Um, you can see it by the people that you interact with. You can see it by leadership teams or whatever it might be. In in your leadership roles, how do you make sure that there is a balance between the two elements during the hiring process, regardless of urgencies, priorities, volumes, whatever it might be? So when you talk to the business about talent acquisition, they don't care about the system that you're using. They don't care about your ATS. They don't care about filling out a requisition template or anything. They care about two things. They care about speed. So bring people faster and bring better people. What you have to do, I'm going to, I'm going to the point that you asked. What you have to, to do is to make sure that you prove that having a cultural fit will bring you better candidates. Probably not faster, but better candidates. So you attach one of the two really strategic points. How you do that? So you have to invest time in the funnel, in the middle of the funnel. So you start creating a long-term analysis. So at the top of the funnel, you have uh, employer branding, for example, the post days, the marketing efforts, etc. That's shiny and that's sexy and that's something that we all want to do. But then in the middle of the funnel, you have the interviews. And it's in the interviews where you are going to know if there is a cultural fit, yes or no, and if there is a technical fit, yes or no. How you invest on that is by train all of the people that are intervening that uh, stage of the recruitment process or implementing programs just like the Amazon's bar racer, right? Where a person that is totally neutral to urgency, to, to technical aspects and everything, interviews just based on culture. And this person has a bit of power. But then after you make the offer and everything, you have to start analyzing the correlation of the candidates that were hired with the bar racer and the ones that were hired without the bar racer. And how you do that and why I mentioned that it's a long term, it's through performance. You need to start correlating the quarterly or biannual performance cycles to see which ones perform better by culture, yes or no and which ones have the highest engagement aspect. So you have a lot of data that you can correlate and you have to make a business case to convince the, the stakeholders that it's worth it to invest on cultural fit. And more, more frequently than not, you will find that there is a strong correlation between a cultural fit and engagement and a productivity. You just need to find from your company what data can help you to create that correlation. That's how you do it. To me, it's extremely important to not miss the, the cultural uh, feed assessment. And that happens in the middle of the funnel, and that has to be measured in a long-term aspect. And Rod, do you feel like the importance of a cultural fit message should come from talent acquisition or from the HR team to the business? None of them. It has to come from the leadership. It has nice. to come from the CEO. It has to come from the guy. It has to come from the board. So if they are not on board with that, 
it will be very hard for you to convince, even if it comes from the CHRO. It has to come from the business. All right, I'm going to move on. I'm going to move on to diversity, equity, and inclusion. You hear about DEI initiative strategies. Um, it's something that a lot of organizations are trying to drive. They define it in different ways. For some organizations, it's diversity in terms of gender, which I think is something that's more widely used. And in other organizations, of course, there's a number of different uh, factors you can look at when you're looking at diversity. From your perspective, how do you think that HR can effectively drive DEI, but beyond just recruitment, because a lot of organizations bring it, bring in the diversity, bring in the diversity sits with recruitment. Okay, what happens to that diversity, or how do you drive that strategy from a larger organization perspective? Is is totally different. So beyond recruitment and into day to day operations and culture, how do you think HR can effectively drive DEI? So I think that it has to be in in two aspects. From the HR perspective, it has to be from the belonging sense. Uh, belonging sense is basic for the human kinds, right? So you want to join an organization where you have a belonging sense and you identify with other people that are similar to you, to your background, to your way of thinking, to how you behave on, in the day to day. That's something that we can influence through recruitment, through metrics, through saying, okay, we have this percentage of nationalities, this percentage of uh, gender balance percentage of whatever inclusion and diversity means to you in your geographical area. The other aspect is the business, which to me is the most important one. And I always like to say that I don't like HR people. I like business people that happen to be in HR. So you have to see it from the business perspective. And from the business perspective, diversity and inclusion looks like who is your consumer? You have to see it outside in, not inside out. So why am I trying to hire or to have a diverse workforce? Why is that? Because you want to represent your consumers. A great example of that is Netflix. The, the VP of uh, diversity and inclusion, actually, she resigned not long ago, Berna Mayers, and I hope I'm pronouncing her last name correctly. She was in charge of bringing diversity to the business. So they wanted to grow in, in Africa, for example. So it's, okay, how much of the African market do we represent in our organization inside? How many people from that region is collaborating with us? How many people we have, creators of content, we have that really understand that market, that come from that market? If the answer is zero or very little, so you have to, to rethink your strategy, right? And start more aggressively hiring that representation of population. So that, that, that's kind of what I think of diversity. You have to ensure that you have a belonging sense for all of your employees, and you also have to see it from outside in perspective, who is your consumer and why you want to represent your consumers in the right way. And do it daily. Yes, correct. Okay. Okay, great. So I think that's spot on. I understand that. I think there's a little bit of a misconception, not a misconception, but I think people are really eager to drive the agenda. And even in larger organizations, I think they just don't know how to do it for the different regions that they operate in. Like, I, I think that's also something to, to consider. Diversity and inclusion from the larger description or explanation of it can apply everywhere. You can have a strategy that you can drop in every country. But then you have regional nuances, you have country-specific nuance, and who's looking at the DE&I agenda from that perspective on tweaking and making sure it resonates with, as you said, not only the customer, but the, the country, the city, whatever it is that you're operating in. I think that's a big one. And, and that's where I think people trip up 
And, and then it falls on recruitment's lap where it's, okay, let's just hire these people. And once they're on board, it stops there, you know? Yeah, so, I think yeah. that the, reason, the reason why it falls with talent acquisition most of the time is because it's easy to calculate and regulate. So some countries will actually even regulate and put some regulations across your hiring process because it's easy to measure. But it has to go beyond. And, and you're absolutely right, depending on the geography that you are, diversity will mean different things, just like in... In South Africa, for example, when I, when I was in, in Adidas, it was more about different ethnicity groups, more than gender balance. But the, the gender balance uh, was a global goal. And now in Edge, for example, we, we are a technology company that happens to, to be in the defense sector. So it's about sovereignty. And if, we're, if we talk about sovereignty, we need to talk about local talent, right? We need the local talent to be here. So we hire a lot of fresh grads that will be prepared to take leadership roles in the future and be able to increase the number of local talent that is within the company. That's diversity for us. But always, you always have to have in mind what is the business need for your diversity goal. I'm going to go off topic for a second because I just want to, I want to highlight the fact that you work for the defense industry. How interesting, like how, what an interesting industry to get, to get involved in and how very different from the other industries that you were in before. That's such a shift for you. Is it, was it a difficult shift to make? Not really because in Boeing, they also have the defense business, right? So that was the first immersion that I had to the defense world. I used to travel to Saudi Arabia probably one week every month. And the business of Boeing in Saudi Arabia is probably 70% defense business. Uh, and it represents a lot of income. Uh, the difference is that we don't create only one platform or one product, but we, we go across many different technologies. The most difficult part to adapt to in the defense industry is that it's an extremely secured environment. And when you are in an extremely secured environment, the innovation and the openness to adopt new technologies is very difficult. What I mean by that, we have to work with on-premise technologies, for example, not cloud technology. So I can't use for recruitment. So by default, I'm a little bit behind. Limited. The yeah. Correct. So that's the most difficult part. And, and the process, security clearance that I need to have, and I can't skip it. So the time to fill will be high no matter what. And it's not in my control. So on top of operating in a function that has a lot of complexities in a region that has a lot of complexities, you've added on many more complexities with this industry and the security factor. So you have a really tough job. You have a very tough job, Rod, I think. So kudos to you and your team. Reminding me that. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> um, okay, let's let's go back into the into the conversation, the line of questions that I had prepared. I want to talk about mentorship because it's very key. It's something I talk about all the time. It plays obviously a very key and pivotal role in, in, in shaping an individual, in yeah. getting things like direct feedback, in learning, in growing, in failing, in excelling, and so on. What kind of mentorship experiences can you touch on or maybe recall or pinpoint within the world of talent acquisition that you feel really left like a significant approach on how you approach your role, on how you function day to day? Yeah, that's a great topic. I've been extremely lucky to have beautiful and amazing and brilliant coaches and mentors throughout my career. I can identify two that have marked lately. All, all of my managers were great and, and all of them gave me something positive, right? 
But if I have to speak to, it's my experience in Adidas with my former manager, his name is Steve Bonomo. After he left Adidas, he, he was the global head for TA for Twitter, for example, really, really a very successful part person, but so humble, like crazy humble. And I think that if I have to, to use one, one word to describe him, would be care. He used to care for every single person in his team. And when I say single, every single person, I mean 250 recruiters across the globe. And he used to know most of them by name, family, who you are, what you like, etc. From him, the coaching and the mentoring that I received was very focused on leadership, on taking things from good to great, on how you can always improve aspects without being extremely aggressive, without having to impose your opinion but more collaborate to create something greater. Diversity of thought, for example. So from him, I, I got the, the obsession for candidate experience, for example. Uh, and then I, I can name my latest, uh, the previous manager that I had, his name is Dr. Ragman, now in this region. And the reason why I've been so fortunate is because I have had mentors and coaches that are extremely different. He's a person from the region, that grew up in Dubai, that the business that he knows the best is the one in the region, right? And it, it can't be more different than the global company, just like the, the companies where Steve Bonomo was. But the lesson that I, that I received from him was more on the business aspect, focus on the business, focus on the business, focus on the business. So that has shaped the way I think and the way I operate. And me, myself, believe it or not, I don't consider myself a coach. Or, or even a mentor. My leadership style is more like an enabler. So my, my job as a leader, as I see it, is to remove barriers. So my team members have to have the clarity of where they want to go, okay? And my job is to remove every barrier that they will have in the, on the way to achieve their goals. I, I don't know if I answered your question correctly or this is what you were looking for, but that, that has been my experience. No, absolutely. Look, at the end of the day, you know, every single guest that comes on my show is here to share their experiences. And I really, it's really just a forum for us to to relate to one another and to understand kind of the challenges that we face. Mentorship, I always like to touch on it. It's so key. And as you said, it's very important to have mentors that are so different from one another because everyone has something that they can offer you that you can learn from. It sounds like you had very influential people that you worked with. The the individual, I think you said his name was Stephen, that moved on to, to Twitter. Yeah. he The fact that he drove that, I don't think, I don't think empathy is the world word. What is the word I'm looking for? To be able to put yourself in the candidate's shoe, I think really is something that's easily talked about, but hard to, to action. And so I know that you benefited a lot and for your, your type of role is extremely crucial. And as you said, the regional experience of your second mentor, it's equally as important. So I always like to have guests share their experiences. How the audience kind of digests the information is completely up to them, but you absolutely answered my question. So thank you. Let's talk about what you're, you're involved in the world of global talent. Okay. You don't operate in, you haven't operated in one industry. You haven't operated in one size of company. You haven't operated in one country. You've really had your hand in, in everything. What would you say are the universal truths in HR, regardless of the regional differences um, or the cultural nuances? What would you say are the truths in HR? Wow, that's a great question. I think that the, the first one is what I was referring to on the day 
outside in. We always have to, to look at what is the result and how we implement the business results through through HR and do not see it from only the HR perspective. And they Bullrich always say the value is judged by the receiver. So we have to think like that. Many times in the world, in the HR world, we tend to assess ourselves with our own metrics, but we are not the receivers of our services. And that's a big mistake. We should measure ourselves by the receivers, the business people, the ones that are outside generating revenue or helping the organization to win in the marketplace, whatever the metrics you are looking at. So that's one universal truth. You need to help the organization. We need the market. And that's also something that they will reach mention very often. Then the, the other universal truth is something that I already mentioned as well. If you don't talk strategic with your stakeholders, you are not adding value. And sometimes it's way simpler than what you think. In talent acquisition, it means higher faster, higher better. That's it. Don't talk about anything else with your stakeholders. Just by approaching those two topics, you have a lot of material to, to talk about. I can think about those two universal things uh, in the HR world. What do you think? What is your, your opinion about it? I think, look, I think I'm aligned with with you. It's funny. I've never been asked the question in reverse. So let me think about my answer. <laughs> That's funny. I think universal truths, regardless of the quantitative aspect of the role, for me, find the data to support whatever message you're trying to deliver, okay? For me, this is key. And there's always a way. There's always a way to find data to support what you're saying. So that would be my one universal truth. Data will help you deliver a message regardless of what the message is. My second would probably be if you cannot relate with your stakeholders, if you can't really actively listen to what their issues are, what is the problem they're trying to solve for, you will never be able to help them. You will never be their partner. They will never see you that way. So for me, this is also super key. And I like just from my own, uh, it's my own perspective, but stakeholder management and how you resonate with someone is so important because it builds that credibility. And it also helps you to become really a subject matter expert, like recruiters. And this is one thing that people, we're not uh, a master of everything. So if you give us a role, we don't just know what we're supposed to find and we can go out there and we can we can source it. And we don't need any support. It doesn't work that way. But if I really actively listen to what is the issue they're trying to solve for it, it may not come down to a specific role or title, which would help to lead or direct my search. It can come to a leadership skill that's missing or a soft skill that needs to be worked on. It helps you to have conversations where you're really partnering with them in the sense that like, and this is a question I always would ask before when I had a hiring manager come to me, tell me they're hiring, they need to hire. I would always ask the question, why? Isn't there somebody on your team that can? Yeah, you have people within your organization. Is there nobody in your organization that you can help to mentor into that next step or to cover the role. And it, this really helped me to understand functions better and understand people that I worked with better. So that's my, I think, my universal truth. I completely agree with you. Thank you. Thank God. I wasn't prepared for that one. <laughs> okay. Um, all right. I'm going to wrap up our call, okay, our discussion. But before I do, I have one last question. And this is a question that I ask everybody that comes on the show, okay? If you could give your like a single, let's say, top piece of advice for HR professionals or talent acquisition professionals, however you want to refer to it, that are just starting out their career, what would it be? And 
for those that are seasoned HR professionals, what would your advice also be? I, I really, really think that it's the same advice for both, which is focus on the experience, focus on the candidate experience, focus on the employee experience. The difference is how you manage and how you handle that. If you are a seasoned HR person in a leadership position, you need to understand that you have to implement the right tools for the organization to provide that right experience. Many times in the HR world, technology means data, okay? If you are in a position of deciding what type of systems you are going to bring, configure them in the right way where you have, as an outcome, great data to analyze so that you can create interventions in the right moments of the employee life cycle. Just like this uh, very used term of moments that matter, right? You need to measure the moments that matter. You need to be able to make correlations, bring data, etc. So the way you influence the experience being a leader is different on the way you, you influence experience being a junior uh, HR professional. And it doesn't mean that is more valuable or less valuable. Being a junior HR professional, you will probably interact more face-to-face -face with your candidates, with, with your stakeholders, with your employees. So make sure that you understand, just as you mentioned, make sure that you understand their business. By doing that, believe it or not, you're providing a great experience. Even if you are going to, to introduce different types of analytics till the point of, of, of uh, having predictive analytics, if you focus it on experience, that's the ultimate goal. Because the predictive analytics will tell you, oh, this person is most likely about to resign. So then you intervene even before the person even knows that we'll think about resigning. It's very advanced, but, but you need to focus it on, on, on the experience perspective. I love that. And you make such a good point. Rod, thank you so much. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Thank you for sharing your insights, your experience, just telling us more about you. It's been really, it's been a pleasure having you on. So thank you. Thank you very much. Oh, thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. And hopefully we get to meet each other at some point face to face and uh, we can continue the conversation. We will for sure. Thank you so much. And for everybody that's listening in, please share and subscribe to Culture A and um, give us your feedback. We always like to hear from you. So if you have any questions for myself or Rod or any of the other guests that have appeared on the show, feel free to reach out and stay tuned for the next episode. Thank you very much, everybody. And Rod, thank you again. Thank you.